Chapter Two, Part Two of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part Two. Making our easting down. Physical observations were made on the outward voyage by Simpson and Wright into the atmospheric electricity over the ocean one set of which consisted of an inquiry into the potential gradient and observations were undertaken at melbourne for the determination of the absolute values of the potential gradient over the sea numerous observations were also made on the radium content of the atmosphere over the ocean to be compared afterwards with observations in the antarctic air the variations in radium content were not large Results were also obtained on the voyage of the Terra Nova to New Zealand upon the subject of natural ionisation in closed vessels. In addition to the work of the ship and the physical work above mentioned, work in vertebrate zoology, marine biology and magnetism, together with four hourly observations of the salinity and temperature of the sea, were carried out during the whole voyage. In vertebrate zoology, Wilson kept an accurate record of birds and he and Lily another record of whales and dolphins. All the birds which could be caught, both at sea and on South Trinidad Island, were skinned and made up into museum specimens. They were also examined for external and internal parasites by Wilson, Atkinson and myself, as were also such fish and other animals as could be caught, including flying fish, a shark, and last but not least, whales in New Zealand. The method of catching these birds may be worth describing. A bent nail was tied to a line, the other end of which was made fast to the halyards over the stern. Sufficient length of line was allowed either to cause the nail to just trail in the sea in the wake of the ship, or for the line to just clear the sea. Thus, when the halyard was hoisted to some thirty or forty feet above the deck, the line would be covering a considerable distance of sea. The birds flying round the ship congregate for the main part in the wake, for here they find the scraps thrown overboard on which they feed. I have seen six albatross altogether trying to eat up an empty treacle tin. As they fly to and fro their wings are liable to touch the line which is spread out over the sea. Sometimes they will hit the line with the tips of their wings, and then there is no resulting capture, but sooner or later a bird will touch the line with a part of the wing above the elbow joint, humorous. It seems that on feeling the contact the bird suddenly wheels in the air, thereby causing a loop in the line which tightens around the bone. At any rate, the next thing that happens is that the bird is struggling on the line and may be hauled on board. The difficulty is to get a line which is light enough to fly in the air but yet strong enough to hold the large birds, such as albatross, without breaking. We tried fishing line with no success, but eventually managed to buy some five-ply extra-strong cobbler's thread, which is excellent for the purpose. But we wanted not only specimens, but also observations of the species, the numbers which appeared, and their habits for little is known as yet of these seabirds. And so we enlisted the help of all who were interested, and it may be said that all the officers and many of the seamen had a hand in producing the log of seabirds, to which additions were made almost hourly throughout the daylight hours. Most officers and men knew the more common seabirds in the open ocean, and certainly of those in the pack and fringes of the Antarctic continent, which, with rare exceptions, is the southern limit of bird life. A number of observations of whales, illustrated by Wilson, were made, but the results, so far as the seas from England to the Cape and New Zealand are concerned, are not of great importance, partly because close views were seldom obtained, and partly because the whales inhabiting these seas are fairly well known. On October 3rd, 1910, in latitude 42 degrees 
17 minutes south and longitude 111 degrees 18 minutes east, two adults of Balaenoptera borealis, northern Rorqual, were following the ship close under the counter, length 50 feet, with a light-coloured calf some 18 to 20 feet long swimming with them. It was established by this and by a later observation in New Zealand, when Lily helped to cut up a similar whale at the Norwegian whaling station at the Bay of Islands, that this Rorqual, which frequents the sub-Antarctic seas, is identical with our northern Rorqual, but this was the only close observation of any whales obtained before we left New Zealand. General information with regard to such animals is useful, however, as showing the relative abundance of plankton on which the whales feed in the ocean. There are, for instance, more whales in the Antarctic than in warmer seas, and some whales at any rate, e.g. humpback whales, probably come north into warmer waters in the winter, rather for breeding purposes than to get food. With regard to dolphins, four species were observed beyond question. The rarest dolphin seen was the Tercio peronii, the peculiarity of which is that it has no dorsal fin. This was seen on October 20, 1910, in latitude 42 degrees 51 minutes south and longitude 153 degrees 56 minutes east. Reports of whales and dolphins which are not based upon carcasses and skeletons must be accepted with caution. It is most difficult to place species with scientific accuracy which can only be observed swimming in the water, and of which more often than not only blows and the dorsal fins can be observed. The nomenclature of dolphins especially leaves much to be desired, and it is to be hoped that some expedition in future will carry a Norwegian harpooner, who could do other work as well since they are very good sailors. Wilson was strongly of this opinion and tried hard to get a harpooner, but they are expensive people, so long as the present boom in whaling lasts, and perhaps it was on the score of expense that the idea was regretfully abandoned. We carried whaling gear, formerly taken on the Discovery Expedition, and kindly lent for this expedition by the Royal Geographical Society of London. A few shots were tried, but an unskilled harpooner stands very little chance. If you go whaling, you must have had experience. The ship was not slowed down to enable marine biological observations to be taken on this part of the expedition, but something like forty samples of plankton were taken with a full-speed net. We were unable to trawl on the bottom until we reached Melbourne, when a trawl was made in Port Phillip Harbour, to try the gear and accustom men to its use. It was not a purpose of the expedition to spend time in deep sea work until it reached Antarctic seas. For four days the wind, such as there was of it, was dead ahead. It is not very often in the forties that a ship cannot make progress for want of wind, but having set all plain sail on October 2nd, with a falling glass, we got a certain amount of wind on the port beam, and did 158 miles in the next 24 hours. Sunday being quiet, Scott read service while the officers and men grouped round the wheel. We seldom had service on deck, for Sundays became proverbial days for a blow on the way out, and service, if held at all, was generally in the wardroom. On one famous occasion we tried to play the pianola to accompany the hymns, but since the rolls were scored rather for musical effect than for church services, the pianola was suddenly found to be playing something quite different from what was being sung. All through the expedition the want of some one who could play the piano was felt, and such a man is certainly a great asset in a life so far removed from all the pleasures of civilization. As Scott wrote in the voyage of the Discovery, where one of the officers used to play each evening, this hour of music has become an institution which none of us would willingly forego. I don't know what thoughts it brings to others, though I can readily guess, but of such things one does not care to write. 
I can well believe, however, that our music smooths over many a ruffle, and brings us to dinner each night in that excellent humour where all seem good-tempered, though cleared for action, and ready for fresh argument. The wind freshened to our joy. Scott was impatient. There was much to be done, and the time for doing it was not too long, for it had been decided to leave New Zealand at an earlier date than had been attempted by any previous expedition, in order to penetrate the pack sooner, and make an early start on the depot journey. The faintest glow of the aurora australis, which was to become so familiar to us, was seen at this time, but what aroused still more interest was the capture of several albatross on the lines flowing out over the stern. The first was a sooty cornicoides. We put him down on the deck, where he strutted about in the proudest way, his feet going flop-flop-flop as he walked. He was a most beautiful bird. Sooty black body, a great black head, with a line of white over each eye, and a gorgeous violet line running along his black beak. He treated us with the greatest contempt, which, from such a beautiful creature, we had every appearance of deserving. Another day, a little later, we caught a wandering albatross, a black-browed albatross, and a sooty albatross altogether, and set them on the deck, tethered to the ventilators while their photographs were taken. They were such beautiful birds that we were loath to kill them but their value as scientific specimens outweighed the wish to set them free, and we gave them ether so that they did not suffer. The Southern Ocean is the home of these and many species of birds, but among them the albatross is pre-eminent. It has been mentioned that Wilson believed that the albatross, at any rate, fly round and round the world over these stormy seas before the westerly winds, landing but once a year on such islands as Kerguelen, St. Paul, and the Auckland Islands, and others to breed. If so, the rest that they can obtain upon the big breaking rollers which prevail in these latitudes must be unsatisfactory judged by the standards of more civilised birds. I watched sea birds elsewhere, of which the same individuals appeared to follow the ship day after day for many thousands of miles, but on this voyage I came to the conclusion that a different set of birds appeared each morning, and that they were hungry when they arrived. Certainly they flew astern and nearer to the ship in the morning, feeding on the scraps thrown overboard. As the day went on, and the birds' hunger was satisfied, they scattered, and such of them as continued to fly astern of the ship were a long way off. Hence we caught the birds in the early morning, and only one bird was caught after midday. The wind continued favourable, and was soon blowing quite hard. On Friday, October 7th, we were doing 7.8 knots under sail alone, which was very good for the old terror push, as she was familiarly called, and we were then just 1,000 miles from Melbourne. By Saturday night we were standing by top-gallant halyards. Campbell took over the watch at 4 a.m. on Sunday morning. It was blowing hard and squally, but the ship still carried top-gallants. There was a big following sea. At 6.30 a.m. there occurred one of those incidents of sea-life which are interesting, though not important. Quite suddenly, the first really big squall we had experienced on the voyage struck us. Top-gallant halyards were let go, and the fore-top-gallant yard came down, but the main topgallant yard jammed when only half down. It transpired afterwards that a gasket which had been blown over the yard had fouled the block of the sheet of the main upper topsail. The topgallant yard was all tilted to starboard, and swaying from side to side. The sail seemed as though it might blow out at any moment, and was making a noise like big guns, and the mast was shaking badly. It was expected that the topgallant mast would go, but nothing could be done while the full fury of the wind lasted. Campbell paced quietly up and down the bridge with a smile on his face. The watch was grouped round the ratlines ready to go aloft, and Crean volunteered to go up alone and try and free the yard, but permission was refused. It was touch and go with the mast, and there was nothing to be done. 
The squall passed, the sail was freed and furled, and the next big squall found us ready to lower upper topsails, and all was well. Finally the damage was a split sail and a strained mast. The next morning a new topgallant sail was bent, but quite the biggest hailstorm I have ever seen came on in the middle of the operation. Much of the hail must have been inches in circumference, and hurt even through thick clothes and oilskins. At the same time there were several water-spouts formed. The men on the topgallant yard had a beastly time. Below on deck men made hail-balls and pretended that they were snow. From now onwards we ran our course before a gale. By the early morning of October 12th Cape Otway Light was in sight. Working double tides in the engine-room, with every stitch of sail set, we just failed to reach Port Phillip Heads by midday, when the tide turned, and it was impossible to get through. We went up Melbourne Harbour that evening, very dark and blowing hard. A telegram was waiting for Scott. Madeira, I'm going south. Amundsen. This telegram was dramatically important, as will appear when we come to the last act of the tragedy. Captain Roald Amundsen was one of the most notable of living explorers, and he was in the prime of life, forty-one, two years younger than Scott. He had been in the Antarctic before Scott, with the Belgica expedition in 1897-99, to and therefore did not consider the South Pole in any sense our property. Since then he had realised the dream of centuries of exploration by passing through the Northwest Passage, and actually doing so in a sixty-ton schooner in 1905. The last we had heard of him was that he had equipped Nansen's old ship, the Fram, for further exploration in the Arctic. This was only a feint. Once at sea he had told his men that he was going south instead of north, and when he reached Madeira he sent this brief telegram, which meant, I shall be at the South Pole before you. It also meant, though we did not appreciate it at the time, that we were up against a very big man. The Admiral commanding the Australian station came on board. The event of the inspection was Nigger, the black ship's cat, distinguished by a white whisker on the port side of his face, who made one adventurous voyage to the Antarctic, and came to an untimely end during the second. The seamen made a hammock for him with a blanket and pillow, and slung it forward among their own bedding. Nigger had turned in, not feeling very well, owing to the number of moths he had eaten, the ship being full of them. When awakened by the Admiral, Nigger had no idea of the importance of the occasion, but stretched himself, yawned in the most natural manner, turned over, and went to sleep again. This cat became a well-known and much photographed member of the crew of the Terra Nova. He is said to have imitated the Romans of old, being a greedy beast, by having eaten as much seal blubber as he could hold, made himself sick, and gone back and resumed his meal. He had most beautiful fur. When the ship was returning from the Antarctic in 1911, Nigger was frightened by something on deck and jumped into the sea, which was running fairly rough. However, the ship was hove to, a boat lowered, and Nigger was rescued. He spent another happy year on board, but disappeared one dark night, when the ship was returning from her second journey to the south in 1912, during a big gale. He often went aloft with the men, of his own accord. This night he was seen on the main lower topsail yard, higher than which he never would go. He disappeared in a big squall, probably because the yard was covered with ice. Wilson rejoined the ship at Melbourne, and Scott left her to arrange further business matters, and to rejoin us in New Zealand. When he landed I think he had seen enough of the personnel of the expedition to be able to pass a fair judgment upon them. I cannot but think that he was pleased. Such enthusiasm and comradeship as prevailed on board could bear only good fruit. It would certainly have been possible to find a body of men who could work a sailing ship with greater skill, but not men who were more willing. 
and that in the midst of considerable discomfort to work hard at distasteful jobs and be always cheerful and it must have been clear that with all the energy which was being freely expended the expedition came first and the individual nowhere it is to the honour of all concerned that from the time it left london to the time it returned to new zealand after three years this spirit always prevailed among the executive officers scott was putting more and more trust in campbell who was to lead the northern party he was showing those characteristics which enabled him to bring his small party safely through one of the hardest winters that men have ever survived bowers also had shown seamanlike qualities which are an excellent test by which to judge the antarctic traveller a good seaman in sail will probably make a useful sledger but at this time scott can hardly have foreseen that bowers was to prove the hardest traveller that ever undertook a polar journey as well as one of the most undaunted but he had already proved himself a first-rate sailor among the junior scientific staff too several were showing qualities as seamen which were a good sign for the future altogether i think it must have been with a cheerful mind that scott landed in australia when we left melbourne for new zealand we were all a bit stale which was not altogether surprising and a run ashore was to do us a world of good after five months of solid grind crowded up in a ship which thought nothing of rolling fifty degrees each way also though everything had been done that could be done to provide them the want of fresh meat and vegetables was being felt and it was an excellent thing that a body of men for whom every precaution against scurvy that modern science could suggest was being taken should have a good course of antiscorbutic food and an equally beneficial change of life before living civilization and so it was with some anticipation that on monday morning october twenty fourth we could smell the land new zealand that home of so many antarctic expeditions where we knew that we should be welcomed scott's discovery shackleton's nimrod and now again scott's terra nova have all in turn been berthed at the same quay at littleton for aught i know at the same number five shed into which they have spilled out their holds and from which they have been restowed with the addition of all that new zealand scorning payment could give and from there they have sailed and thither their relief ships have returned year after year scott's words of the discovery apply just as much to the terra nova not only did new zealand do all in her power to help the expedition in an official capacity but the new zealanders welcomed both officers and men with open arms and gave them to understand that although already separated by many thousands of miles from their native land here in this new land they would find a second home and those who would equally think of them in their absence and welcome them on their return but we had to sail round the southern coast of new zealand and northwards up the eastern coast before we could arrive at our last port of call the wind went ahead and it was not until the morning of october twenty eighth that we sailed through littleton heads the word had gone forth that we should sail away on november twenty seventh and there was much to be done in the brief month that lay ahead there followed four weeks of strenuous work into which was sandwiched a considerable amount of play the ship was unloaded when as usual men and officers acted alike as stevedores and she was docked that an examination for the source of the leak might be made by mr h j miller of littleton who performed a like service for more than one antarctic ship but the different layers of sheathing protecting a ship which is destined to fight against ice are so complicated that it is a very difficult matter to find the origin of a leak all that can be said with any certainty is that the point where the water appears inside the skin of a ship is almost certainly not the locality in which it has penetrated the outside sheathing our good friend miller wrote scott 
attacked the leak and traced it to the stern. We found the false stern split, and in one case a hole bored for a long stern through bolt which was much too large for the bolt. The ship still leaks, but the water can now be kept under with the hand pump by two daily efforts of a quarter of an hour to twenty minutes. This in Littleton, but in a not far distant future every pump was choked, and we were bailing with three buckets, literally for our lives. Bower's feat of sorting and re-stowing not only the stores we had, but the cheese, butter, tinned food, bacon, hams, and numerous other products which are grown in New Zealand, and which any expedition leaving that country should always buy there in preference to carrying them through the tropics, was a masterstroke of clear-headedness and organisation. These stores were all relisted before stowing and the green-banded or northern party and red-banded or main party stores were not only easily distinguishable, but also stowed in such a way that they were forthcoming without difficulty at the right time and in their due order. The two huts which were to form the homes of our two parties down south had been brought out in the ship and were now erected on a piece of waste ground near by the same men who would be given the work to do in the south. The gear peculiar to the various kinds of scientific work which it was the object of the expedition to carry out was also stowed with great care. The more bulky objects included a petrol engine and a small dynamo, a very delicate instrument for making pendulum observations to test the gravity of the earth, meteorological screens, and a dyne's anemometer. There was also a special hut for magnetic observations, of which only the framework was finally taken, with the necessary but bulky magnetic instruments. The biological and photographic gear was also of considerable size. For the interior of the huts there were beds with spring mattresses, a real luxury but one well worth the space and money, tables, chairs, cooking ranges and piping, and a complete acetylene gas plant for both parties. There were also extensive ventilators, which were not a great success. The problem of ventilation in polar regions still remains to be solved. Food can be packed into a comparatively small space, but not so fuel, and this is one of the greatest difficulties which confront the polar traveller. It must be conceded that in this respect Norway, with her wonderful petrol-driven Fram, is far ahead of us. The Terra Nova depended on coal, and the length of the ship's stay in the south, and the amount of exploration she could do after landing the shore parties, depended almost entirely upon how much coal she could be persuaded to hold after all the necessaries of modern scientific exploration had been wedged tightly into her. The Terra Nova sailed from New Zealand with 425 tonnes of coal in her holds and bunkers, and 30 tonnes on deck in sacks. We were to hear more of those sacks. Meanwhile, stalls were being built under the forecastle for 15 ponies, and since room could not be found below for the remaining four, stalls were built on the port side of the forehatch. The decks were corked, and the deck-houses, and other fittings which might carry away in the stormy seas of the south, were further secured. As the time of departure drew near, and each day of civilization appeared to be more and more desirable, the scene in Littleton became animated and congested. Here is a scientist trying to force just one more case into his small laboratory, or decanting a mass of clothing just issued into the bottom of his bunk, to be slept on since there was no room for it on the deck of his cabin. On the main deck Bowers is trying to get one more frozen sheep into the ice-house. In the rigging, working parties are overhauling the running gear. The engine-room staff are busy on the engine, and, though the ship is crowded, there is order everywhere, and it is clean. But the scene on the morning of Saturday, November 26, baffles description. There is no deck visible. In addition to thirty tons of coal in sacks on deck, there are two and a half tons of petrol, stowed in drums, which in turn are cased in wood. 
on the top of sacks and cases and on the roof of the ice-house are thirty-three dogs chained far enough apart to keep them from following their first instinct to fight the nearest animal they can see the ship is a hubbub of howls in the forecastle and in the four stalls on the deck are nineteen ponies wedged tightly in their wooden stalls and dwarfing everything are the three motor sledges in their huge crates sixteen foot by five foot by four foot two of them on either side of the main hatch and the third across the break of the poop they are covered with tarpaulins and secured in every possible way but it is clear that in a big sea their weight will throw a great strain upon the deck it is not altogether a cheerful sight but all that care and skill can do has been done to ensure that the deck cargo will not shift and that the animals may be as sheltered as possible from wind and seas and it's no good worrying about what can't be helped End of chapter 2, part 2